This is Resist and Renew. The UK-based podcast about social movements. What we're fighting for, why, and how it all happens. The hosts of the show are... Me, Kat. Uh, me, Sammy. And me, Ali. I'm recording this now, baby. Shit, it's a podcast! <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us again at the Resist and Renew podcast. This week, we are joined by Jacina Kalist from Land in Our Names, and we're going to be talking about land inequalities, race, and visions for a more just relationship to land here in the UK and more broadly. Um, so Jacina Kalist is a health professional, a community organizer, and after burning out of academia, she began thinking more deeply about food growing and land justice. Under an apple tree in June 2019, she co-founded Land In Our Names, a black-led collective addressing land inequalities affecting black people and people of colour's ability to farm and grow food in Britain. She loves forest walks and hopes one day to set up an eco-village. Thanks so much for joining us, Jacina. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about a lot of different things today, but um, if you could kick us off by talking about... Yeah, kind of what's the context that Land in Our Names is organizing in? Why why land justice and why coming at it from like a race perspective? And yeah, what's what's kind of the, the context that we're we're in? Oh, so just small questions then. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, there's huge inequalities in terms of land ownership in Britain, um, which I was sort of only vaguely aware of, but... Um, land ownership is very invisibilized in this country. Um, we do know that um, half of all land in England is owned by 1% of the population and um, it's concentrated into the hands of the elite, um, the crown, um, the royal family, aristocrats um, and other random sets of oligarchs from various places, um, the church, universities, um, but lots of people don't know this and it seemed important to approach um, land injustices using a racial justice lens because of the effects of those inequalities on the health and well-being of black people and people of colour in Britain. And the more that I got into food growing and the farming world, which um, can mean that um, you're in very white spaces, particularly in permaculture and, you know, lots of lovely hippie new age environments um, aren't necessarily engaged with those racial justice issues. Um, but it did seem really important because of how mm -hmm. food inequalities affect um, black people and uh, women of colour who experience hunger or are you know, using food banks disproportionately. Um, health inequalities due to living in um, very um, polluted areas or in overcrowded areas of Britain. Um, and those inequalities have become more stark due to COVID and lockdown conditions um, mm -hmm. and the inequalities in access to um, green spaces and um, mm -hmm. yeah, outdoor environments, um, particularly parks and inner cities. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. I don't think many people 
necessarily draw those two aspects together. I think farming as like in most people's mind or as like a mainstream narrative is is quite white and it's quite mostly just about like countryside and maybe it's like nice nature and food. But I think drawing that with the, the structural inequalities you were talking about is really important. Um, yeah, my mom is actually a farmer. Uh, so I grew up around the countryside and land and yeah, as a person of color, it's not the necessarily the easiest place to to interact with things. Um, so I yeah, very much value the work that you're doing. Um, I'd be really keen to hear about like how did you come along this path? Like what brought you to to land work and land land justice issues? Yeah, it's funny because there's so many people that do have farming histories in their families, and I grew up with a Grenadian dad who took care of me and would always be talking to me about um, his experiences with farming or nature in Grenada where he grew up and um, obviously it's a massively different context to be hearing about cocoa trees, mango trees, nutmeg, iguana hunting um, to Britain or where I grew up in London and it was my mum that would be gardening with me and working with a very sort of dense clay that grew not as many things as fertile soils in Grenada would. Um, and I was very lucky to have access to gardens mm. and parks um, from where I grew up and not everyone has that. And, not everyone has the kind of opportunities where like they're encouraged to do stuff outdoors. Um, so I, I do think that, yeah, I had two parents that encouraged me to learn about nature or lean into what, what my interests were in terms of wildlife and animals. And I grew up wanting to be a vet, which I think pushed me into farming a little bit, but obviously discouraged from that. Um, and yeah, it's, Sorry, repeat, can you repeat the question again? I just want to make sure I've answered it fully. Yeah, yeah it was just um, like, what what was your path to getting into like farming or land justice? Ah, yeah. Sorry, I started really far at the beginning, but um, more recently, <laughs> um, everywhere that I've lived since I moved out of my family home, where, where I was helping in the garden and we did grow a bit of food, not very much, um, but everywhere since then, I was the person that was growing or gardening, um, often the only person in a house shed that was doing that. Um, and I got more conscious of that as something that I was doing while I was burning out of a sexual mm -hmm. health PhD. And I enrolled on different permaculture courses and I think that there were lots of people in the last few years who've been sort of going oh yeah nature oh yeah um I want to be outside more or I want to grow food more and so it began to be like drawing a network of that and um meeting up with friends to go on these nature walks or doing permaculture courses with friends um and I went to Portugal to do a month-long food forest course um, and moved into a permaculture project for a mm. year in London and just was making it more embedded in my life. Um, I was still working in sexual health then um, but I think there's a lot of people now who 
sort of might read the news mm. about climate change or environmental degradation and think, oh, right, well, my day-to-day -day is commuting into London, although we don't do that anymore, but, you know, mm -hmm. getting my pret sandwich and working in a way that doesn't address this. So how can I increase that bit of my life where I want to feel like I'm doing something rather than just waiting for mm -hmm. the fire to engulf us all? And um, I felt like my way to not worry as much about changing climate environment was to um, heal the planet or be part of the healing of the planet by getting into sustainable regenerative farming and um, while I was living in a permaculture project um, this was last year I read the land for the many report which touched on a lot of issues that were connected to racial injustice, but didn't really directly address how land mm. injustices are racialized. So that felt like the right time to co-found Land In Our Names. And I was really lucky that um, I'd started to build a network of people, people of color, black people who were also interested in this. Um, and I do still have moments where I'm like, oh, wow, people are wanting to listen to me talk about this or wanting to listen to Lion or get Lion to do things. Um, but there is a real appetite for it. And in some ways, the land sector and the land justice movement haven't paid attention to enough to racial mm -hmm. injustice as a facet of um, its activism or organising. So I think that means there's like a real appetite now um, for for lion to to say mm -hmm. what say what we want and say what we need to you know like we've got an audience ready and waiting yeah absolutely it's really amazing to see how many spaces that you're speaking in and and really being heard so like it feels like people are sitting up and wanting to hear uh wanting to hear now and that's yeah late but but really good that it's starting um and i guess it'd be really wonderful to hear a bit more about kind of what lion and land in our names is all about um, and yeah, maybe a little bit about how it came into being. Yeah, sure. Um, so, okay, I'll start with how it came into being. Um, I had read the Land for the Many report and was planning to go to Soul Fire Farm, which is a farm in upstate New York, which organizes uh, to end racism in the food system. And they talk a lot about land reparations and it was just sort of fermenting in my brain and I'd sort of gone through a bereavement um, just a few weeks before that and so I was really mulling over like what am I doing in my life kind of thing and woke up one day and thought of landing our names as a name for something to do and uh, mm. it was a great acronym I'm really good at acronyms so I was like okay got to keep going <laughs> with that and um, thought of the logo and then sat with Ola, who I'd met only a couple of weeks before, and um, he works at a uh, organisation that's in the land sector, and just yeah said, hey, this is what I'm thinking, and you know we really bounce good ideas off each other, and under this apple tree in South London, this is where Land and Our Names was co-founded. 
and then I got to go to Soul Fire Farm and keep hearing about the stories of um, black African Americans who'd um, been fighting to keep their land or to get land reparations and the ways that they've done that and um, the context of America was just so vastly different in so many areas but it was a really inspiring space and somewhere where I could learn a lot and bring back these ideas and then I held like a dinner for people that I knew would be interested in this and so we um, kept kept the ideas rolling and you know kind of galvanized people through this through this dinner and then um i guess yeah like we're very it's a very young organization still it's only been 13 months or so um and yeah we're still a black-led collective and we are planning to do a lot of events on farms and our biggest event was in January at the Oxford Royal Farming Conference where, uh, well it was actually after the Oxford Royal Farming Conference, um, we had a caucus that was for black and brown people who were food growers or interested in farming and food growing and Leah Penniman from this farm that I visited um, had come to give a keynote at the Oxford Royal Farming Conference. So we, yeah, I was so surprised that people showed up and in the numbers that they did. Um, over mm. 50, I think, people came and it was to a farm in rural Oxfordshire um, in the middle of January. And people had come from all over the country and, you know, there was a lot of hugging and crying and friendships that were formed. And that is what the plan was for this year. But 2020 has um, done a number on all of us. And um, mm. yeah, we've kind of shifted our output and our organising. But the plan is always to get people to come to pe uh, farms which are led or owned by um, people of colour. And that event in January was at the Willowbrook Farm, which is the UK's first um, halal family farm. Um, lovely people there. And that's what's so nice about this work is just meeting these amazing people um, who are just so busy farming. You don't really get to hear their stories very much. And all across Britain, there are few people, but there are they are there um, who are farming. Um, and yeah, getting more people onto their farms because they always need volunteers and there's such an appetite for people that have been living in inner city areas. And I imagine the pandemic sort of accelerated that. Like, why do we live here? If we're just in our house, can we actually cope? Can we survive? Is this healthy? Is this an environment that's nourishing for us? Um, and so I'm hoping that over the next year or few years, we can really push that, accelerate that, where we're able to run events on farms and get people connected locally to black and brown food growers in their area. Um, but for now, we're doing a lot of talking, we're doing a lot of writing. Um, and yeah, like hopefully, well, we've got Black History Month coming up and um, yeah, we're hoping to do a lot of championing mm -hmm. the, the black and brown food growers that we've met over the past year um, during that month.
Amazing. Sounds like there's some really good plans mm. in the pipeline. Um, and uh, yeah, it'd be great to see them unfold. Um, I just wanted to um, pick up on something you mentioned earlier about reparations um, and just ask if you could share a little bit more with us around the connections between reparations and land, because that isn't something that automatically connects mm. in my head. Yeah, well, it's it's quite common for that to be the case because um, the reparations movement hasn't typically talked about land in Britain um, and hasn't been as sort of widespread discussed in political spaces as it is in the States. Um, so I really like bringing the word reparations back to its original form of like repair and that we need repair as humans, particularly people who have experienced colonial oppression, enslavement, forced labour, exploitation, and that we need to heal from that. And at the same time, the land that was degraded and exploited and um, you know extracted from also needs that same repair. And um, if we're talking about black and brown people um, working with the land, using regenerative farming techniques that are centuries old, like so, so, so long of a lineage of using good sustainable practices in farming, um, that then we can, yeah, we can really make a difference. Um, and it's easier in America to articulate a position on representation, um, not representation, reparations because of the more direct links with um, enslavement and then mm. if you've got communities here who are from countries that were formerly colonized and displaced as you know I'm of African descent families from Grenada um, have been moved around quite a lot um, it's harder to say why Britain owes me something, but my family suffered to build the wealth of this country and had to alter their diets, mm -hmm. lives, family structures, etc., um, for the benefit of Britain. And then now, if Caribbean communities, for example, mm -hmm. are experiencing food inequalities, then Britain is implicated in that and there is enough land. And that's something that we don't really talk about enough that, you know, that the land scarcity is made up. It's not real. If you look at the golf course, we could use that to grow food. It's mm -hmm. a choice that we don't. It's a choice when people like someone's made the choice that others are going to go hungry and that we're all meant to be OK with that. Um, and reparations is partly about stopping that, that normalizing of, of the suffering <laughs> um, and saying like, we, we have a right to be able to, to live well and live in harmony with the land. Um, and so it's something that we're still working on, like what is, what is the ask? And learning from people who have quantified that, yeah. I know that there's been more work done by, you know, Caribbean governments. Um, Queen Mother Moore, I think, was the first person who, um, I think, was based in America and said, like, this is the amount this is the amount that we want on our checks. Um, and learning from successful reparations um, movements that, that were not 
um, connected to Britain. Um, I mean, it's still difficult just getting an apology um, out of people who are directly descended mm -hmm. from from um, slavers. Um, so yeah, it's a long way to go, but ultimately um, we're also seeing some recognition from progressive landowners that something needs to change and people that want to interrupt mm. this idea that their the inheritance of land um, yeah that they, they don't want to to do that necessarily um, so people are approaching us with offers and asks that are to do with their land um, and so that is an area where we might see reparations. We're also hoping to um, not, yeah, like learn from the reparations map that Soulfire Farm has been building, which will, um, it sort of matches land projects run by um, BPOP communities with white people who want to redistribute or donate. So a project in Carolina might need a tractor and someone is able to, to see that very like on the map and, and yeah be able to, to donate what they have. point you made about um yeah this the the current situation is a choice and to be reminded that certain distributions of land certain inequalities are choices is because they're because they are normalized so they're it's like hard to imagine things as different but i think that's really important to see that certain things were chosen like it was a choice uh, around land distribution, it was a choice around the fact that former slave owners got paid for millions and millions of pounds and, and the UK government and taxpayers only stopped paying, what, five years ago for that and that, that was a choice but it wasn't a choice that was made to pay or repair anything around formerly enslaved people and I think, yeah, it's, it's good to just keep reminding ourselves about, about that. Um, yeah, and I'm wondering, I know I know you said you didn't have like a a clear ask, but do you have like does Lion have like kind of a vision for land justice and like hmm. what that means in the UK? Yeah, um it's probably written down really well somewhere. But <laughs> 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 um it's we would want 
that black people and people of colour are able to grow and sell and eat food that is localised, nutrient-dense, um, you know, um, healthy, in inverted commas. Um, and it's, we also would want that people are able to access the living environment around them without it mm -hmm. being based on productivity and, um, you know, so there is like an element of growing food, but it's also about just being able to be and enjoy and access this, yeah, the beautiful places that, that exist. Um, and it's also, like, it's really important that we're able to um, experience the rural environments without feeling any kind of fear or racism, um, which is, is quite common that there will be mm -hmm. attacks on people um, or like there's less of a feeling of safety than there might be in inner city areas. Um, so yeah, I mean, ending racism, loads of black farmers, um, lots of use of the land that's um, in accordance with spiritual practices or farming practices from um, places where we have heritage. Um, and that's something like I was really not expecting this to emerge from the land justice work, but that I was able to cultivate a connection to a spirituality or multiple forms mm. of spirituality through land. Um, having mm. been raised as an atheist, um, actually just, and I'm still on the edge of it and uh, it's, it's not fully formed, but like West African spiritual traditions make sense because they're so rooted in land. Going to Willowbrook and hearing mm -hmm. Lutfi speak about um, Islam and land connection and land stewardship, I was blown away. Um, and indigenous traditions and you know how, how we talk about um, loads of places being better in terms of how they will work with the land to avoid the really disastrous impacts of climate change. Like if, if if we just mm -hmm. listened, <laughs> California wouldn't be on fire. So, um, for sure. Yeah, that's that's something really beautiful, and like I, we we should be leaning into that a lot more. Um, and it's, I think Britain is one of the places that's most divorced from that kind of spiritual ecolo ecology. Um, and I don't mm -hmm. see Christianity as somewhat some. Uh, a belief system that's particularly in line with with that, like um, giving, um, like animating the land or believing that it's as alive as we are, um, and not something mm -hmm. that we extract from or have dominance over. Um, but yeah, personally, I'm really enjoying that. Um, it's a very nourishing aspect of, of the land justice work for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like I like that as like using well not using but like the land as like a way of like developing a relationship to to land to place and to spirituality. I think that's really like a nice avenue. And I've been I've been doing a lot of reading about like 
the body and like the capacity to like feel and like if we could feel our impacts on each other we wouldn't have done like war we wouldn't have done colonialism and like i feel like that's a similar thing that's coming through for like land if you like can feel our impact on the land or like i don't know have a relationship with like the trees that are around us like you wouldn't chop them all down to make cheap paper or something like i think that's that's really yeah, important um i know and i guess i'm wondering like i yeah how within this like transition you talked about like ending racism and like having more people of color and black people on the land do you, does this like in this vision is like land ownership still a thing is it like other different models of land ownership you like thinking about or yeah how does how does that fit in with that justice framework yeah it's funny because um land in our names could be interpreted as something that is just about land ownership and mm -hmm. um i am anti-capitalist raised by communists and mm -hmm. definitely never been amazing <laughs> thank you <laughs> I'm on the right podcast. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> um, yeah, it's we, we're not in favour of private property, and if there was someone who was uh, just wanting to buy a house for themselves or to own land that no one else was going to be able to use, then people in Lyon wouldn't be in, in support of that, really, like mm. the... The idea or the, the best goal for um, land in our names is, and that's why, like Ola, um, the co-founder, um, has been really peeved when people have said land in our name, as if like, we just want mm. land that's in Josina's name or Ola's name. But if I had land, then there'd be no fences around it. If I have land, then I'm not really going to have my doors locked all the time. Well, I should, maybe shouldn't say that it's a security issue. But in general, I want people to be able to access it and for multiple communities to be able to, to um, benefit from it. Um, so, yeah, like there, there is that tension between like fighting for more people to be able to own land um, who are people of colour, but also inherent in that is that um, it's common use that we ultimately want from that. And, um, you know, it's a massive scar that's been um, created in this country and everywhere else from enclosures. And I find it really mm -hmm. hard to enjoy British landscapes because of how it's been scored up and, you know, it's fences mm -hmm. everywhere and there's you know very little um ability to access um some of the most beautiful parts so um yeah in the vision the the land is for everyone and um the organizing principles that we're starting with um you know it's not just self-interest it's also working from the bottom up um you know, we're not interested in um, land ownership for black communities because we're black. We're interested in land ownership for black communities because it's the black communities that need it most. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I feel like in a lot of what you were just sharing in terms of the kind of values that are underpinning your work, I guess that's what I'd like to explore a little bit more. 
Um, so one of the reasons we started this podcast was to kind of look at how groups that are doing social justice work are are working kind of more internally, like how, how they're kind of functioning, as well as what they're working on out in the world. Um, and um, this, uh, yeah, this next question is around how you're living these values that you've just been talking about um, in terms of the way that Lion works. Um, and if you can share a little bit about that, it would be exciting to hear. <laughs> um, great, yeah. Um, well, we're a collective which um, means that we're trying to be very democratic in our decision-making. Um, there's a lot of organising principles which are new to the team. Um, and I feel like I'm not necessarily the best person within the team to answer this because there's other people who are like, they've had to slow me down a bit and mm. remind me that we mm. need to talk about care and how we don't burn out because having come from academia and a very sort of fast paced job in sexual health which is the last thing I did before I went to do lion stuff full time um it's hard to embed care into the organizing and you know like there's a lot of older generations of activists who are like well if you don't burn out you're not doing it properly um so <laughs> how I felt a well, I don't know. There's, I mean, there's always enough work to occupy our time. Um, so, yeah, I guess like thinking about process a lot and trying to have like strategy meetings every other week so that we're always going back and reviewing what we're doing and why we're doing it um, is one of the ways. But we're also, like, I'd say that in all of our events, there's that spirituality stuff coming in, mm. um, which really grounds the values of our work in the events. And um, yeah, like we will talk about our ancestors quite a lot, um, both our like named personal connected ancestors and then just the wider concept of the ancestors. Um, and encourage people at our events to think about those. So um, at a couple of events, um, it's a question I like to ask people, which is um, like, who in your family or who's from where you're from that inspires you? And you always get such rich answers from that. Mm -hmm. And in the context of land work, lots of people have a mother or a grandmother who's inspired them to do what they're doing now um, and yeah honoring that because you know as we said earlier the image of the farmer is a white man but for so many of us we have these farming histories um, of people that were like their, their work wasn't valued their backbreaking labor wasn't really talked about or it was really normalized that they, that they did that and that they fed countless people maybe um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess there's a lot of uplifting in our work and that, that's one of our key, key values. Amazing. Mm. I was just going to say, as a, as a process head, I can't imagine having strategy days every two weeks. That sounds like incredible and <laughs> tiring at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I'd say that it's good, but um, 
it's really hard to shift from that like productivity always mindset and you know I'm often at the strategy meetings being like yeah yeah okay so what are the outputs like why are we talking about this (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah I'm glad that um I won't use the language of like yeah it's slowing us down but it is like encouraging that reflection and I think overall for our well-being it's really good to to be able to to make time for that um and it's I don't I think that there's something like in how we're organizing that means that we we sort of move move as one in some ways it's getting a bit like um more spiritsy than I, I usually do but um like there's been weeks where we're all sort of feeling it all at the same time and we've had um like people that do somatic stuff and body work come in to um, do like a meditation or breathing session with us and at the height of the latest blm news cycle where it was pretty relentless um mm. not only the bad news and all the protests, but also being asked to comment on it mm-hmm. in our work. Um, and lots of organisations that were white majority that didn't have, you know, a position on it, or they didn't have a black person in their teams or lives that they could ask and coming to us. And, um, you know, while we're also feeling it in a really sort of personal and painful way, um, that yeah like we just sort of collectively made the decision okay we're not going to have a meeting we're going to get someone to come in and lead a meditation with us because um Hmm. working is actually like not the right thing for us to do um and Hmm. it was nice to feel like we could do that and that we were a team that were all on the same page whereas if i was in like a white majority space like when i was in academia it felt like you know all right there's something wrong with me today and it's only me that is really bothered by this um and that I should probably just keep it to myself and um you know uh the the expectation to soldier on is has gone from doing the work I guess like the 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 pain is very like we're able to bring our whole selves to to the workspace Mm. I mean that sounds incredible in terms of being able to have that level of collective care um and to be able to kind of hold each other and know what is needed and mm. if, if that's not work, that's amazing that a team can decide to do that. Um, I think something else that really struck me when you were sharing was around the, um, just in terms of like the connection between the outward facing work and the in, inward work around like changing the story around land and really bringing a strong racial justice lens to land in the UK and then inviting people in your spaces to have that real connection with with their own stories um, mm. and the, the ancestor work and, and bringing that into a way of working um, just feels like such an amazing mirroring of, of the connection between that inner work and that outer political goal. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much for sharing, yeah, sharing those things with us. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, just got a couple more questions. The, ne- the next one is just like... And I'm sure you get asked this a lot. Is like if someone's listening to the podcast and they want to, they're inspired by what you're doing. What would you recommend that they could do? Like, how could they support Lions' work or just land justice more generally? Yeah. Um, well, I'm really conscious of um, that 
London, like Lions team is pretty based in London. And so depending on where they are, um, you know, if they're already in a rural space or have access to um, a farm or food growing project, like get involved, put seeds in the ground and then you're already ahead of what we want to do in some ways. Um, and if people want to support Lion's work, then that's fantastic. Um, you can get in touch with us if you want to be really, really hands-on. Um, if you want to follow us on Instagram, that is a nice way to be a supportive member of the wider community. Um, people can write about us, uh, donate to us, or encourage uh, reparations to come our way. Um, and yeah, I mean, like we, we're, we're forced in a lot of ways to act local at the moment. And so there's lots and lots of parts of the country where it might be a easier to do the direct land justice work in places where there's arable land that can be used for farming. Um, and that, yeah, like Lion shouldn't be taking on the work in in those regions you know there's like a couple of places where we might be doing events over the year um over the next three years in gloucestershire for example uh, we've got some mm. uh, events happening um but yeah the work has to happen nationally um mm. by many many people and um we are really supportive of people who want to act in, in their areas to do to do things that um are relevant to, to the local communities and will help that, that community to, to um, eat and sell and grow Amazing. their own food. Yeah, that all sounds so good. Um, there, that's the end of our questions. Is there anything you like you feel like you'd like to add in that we didn't ask about? Um, no, I just add that this is we're on the cusp of something really exciting. I've never seen so many people talking about land and land justice. And um, it's it, it's sort of shit that it's taken a pandemic and the latest iteration of Black Lives Matter to bring up um, how nature connection, farming and um, yeah, like rural experiences of racism all are connecting. Um, but there are so many different groups and organisations that are to taking this on. Colonial Countryside, Black Girl Hike, Black Girls Camping, um, all of the different projects that um, Lion are connected to, um, Orside Farm and um, Black Roots, that are a project in Tottenham, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's just... Um, on the days where it feels really hard to get up and do anything, I'm reminded that there is suddenly so many people that are doing things uh, that are in this, in, in the same remit that, uh, you know, we're fighting alongside. And I just want to tell everyone that, yeah, this is something big and we're going to see massive changes in the next five to 10 years when it comes to the land sector and racial justice. Amazing. Can't wait for the pandemic to end and see see all the seeds starting to come up. That's going to be exciting times. Woohoo! <laughs> 
thanks again to Jacina from Land in Our Names. You can find them at landinournames.community or landinournames on Instagram. Thanks as well to Brown Belt for letting us use their song Fucking Melt. You can find them on Bandcamp and Instagram. As always, thanks to Klaus for letting us use his song Neff as our intro and outro music. And if you want to find out anything about Resist and Renew as a training collective, uh, our website is resistrenew.com and you can support our work and support the podcast there. See you next time.